0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this morning to FBC. Glad that you're here. and uh, Come on in and find your seats there if you're out in the hallway. Our scripture reading is found in Ezekiel in the second chapter this morning, if you would find your way there rather short chapter, Ezekiel chapter 2. After our reading, we'll ask the men to come forward. We'll have a prayer for the offering and then uh, let them collect that as J.L. shares her musical ministry. Ezekiel 2. Now, actually, at the end, uh, read the end of twenty-eight. So it says, So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation, that has rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. That vision is a... Picture, that book is a picture of what he would have to share to the people of Israel, lamentation and mourning and woe, because of their rebellion. And so he did that and uh, had a number of interesting experiences doing so, which we shall see as we read on in the prophet Ezekiel. Amen. All right, I want to ask the men if they will come forward. We'll have a brief prayer. And then Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has told us in the last 10 verses, of which, uh, over which we spent two weeks looking at them, that there is certain conduct that is proper for sound doctrine. And this is called for in the life of the church in Crete, in contrast to the uh, sinful lifestyle that those people lived in their culture, remember what chapter 1 told us, that They were liars and evil beasts and lazy and uh, teaching false things and and all of that. Uh, There's a lot of that to go around today, isn't there? And uh, so we are not all that much different than the island of Crete. Let's just get out of our minds that they were special sinners that uh, have a really bad uh, situation or standing before God. They're really no different than... Other people, they might have been specially characterized by one or other sins, but you know what? We have all of those in our modern culture uh, today. It's sad to say the human race doesn't really advance all that much. You know, we look at the technology and the different things and say, "Wow, look at where we've come!" We haven't gotten anywhere. We haven't we haven't much done much at all. I mean, human nature is the same. Human sin is the same. Uh, human rebellion against God is the same. Uh, you know, These other things are just kind of accoutrements, if you will, just extra things, uh, uh, side dishes to the main issue uh, that afflicts humanity. And so Paul says, don't teach them to be more like what they are. Teach them to be more like what Christ is like. Teach them sound doctrine, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, And Titus, yourself, you have to be an example of all these things to these ones. Then the last uh, two verses of that segment, 2, 9, and 10, dealt with bondservants. So he broke away from the age-based grouping because he didn't have any other ages really to deal with. I mean, he could have talked to children, I suppose, but we get that instruction in Ephesians chapter 6 about children. In fact, that's interesting, isn't it, that the young men received one instruction to be of sober mind, And the children in Ephesians 6 receive basically one instruction, you know, obey and honor your parents. That's it. You do that, you're you're on the right road. Now, he starts out in verse number 11 and uh, with a very important concept that I want us to grasp this morning. These verses are classic verses. I say it that way to say that they are very, should be, very well-known among Christians. They are a very great summary of the work of God and His grace. And so let's read them together and then see how they fit with the prior verses. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. These verses, 11, 12, 13, and 14, are a single sentence. Now, your NIV perhaps may have, it it did, I think both, Older and newer versions do this. Break it into two sentences. But even then, you still have quite a lengthy sentence to deal with. Then verse 15, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. The other translations do retain it as a single sentence, but it is a mouthful of a sentence for the grace of God that brings salvation. Notice at the beginning you have the uh, appearance of grace And later on in the verse, you're going to have the appearance of glory, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. But the first one was the appearance of grace. Now, uh, notice also, just to kind of introduce ourselves to the text and make some observations, notice what he says at the end of the chapter, verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. It's very interesting that the apostle has to reiterate, wants to reiterate to Titus, look, tell them this and keep telling them this. Don't give up on telling them these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. It's not like you go over Christian doctrine once and then you say, well, check that off my list. I move on to something else. No, you, in my job... We have to just go over and over and over and over again. And I see in a cycle now having been in ministry long enough that there are gaps in what has been taught lately that I think, well, I just taught on that. But then I look and I say, oh, well, no, actually that was 10 or 15 years ago. (laughs) I don't remember that. You all don't remember that. Some of you weren't here that long ago. So we have to continually go over and over and over. And then we have new believers that come along, and they have never been exposed to that. So it's very important for Titus to speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. By the way, notice that last phrase there. We'll get to this when we come to it in a week or two, but look at that all authority. Who has all authority in heaven and on earth? the Lord Jesus Christ. And he delegates that to his ministers who are proclaiming his word and saying, look, you exhort and rebuke with all authority. When it comes to the word, Titus, you're the boss. You get that? It's not he's the ultimate boss, we uh, we understand that. He's the guy who's bringing the authoritative word of Christ to the people, and there's nobody that has a higher authority than him when he speaks the Bible, okay? with all authority. Don't let people despise you. Don't let them look down upon you. Uh, Take that authority that you have and use it. Speak with authority. Don't be shy and retiring. Don't be, uh, you know, holding back. Just spit it out. Speak it. Don't be afraid to do so. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine and continue to speak these things exhorting and rebuking with all authority. Now, the important point that I wanted to come to as far as understanding the whole chapter together as one unit is at the beginning of verse number 11. It says this, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Do you see that, that word for? Does your translation have it? I was looking at uh, another translation not in english it was the reina valera 1995 in spanish and it does not translate the word for from greek into spanish and so i asked my spanish speaking friends what's going on with this and it was one of those cases where the translators decided that it wasn't important to translate that word into the target language of espanol and I said, why? Why is this? I mean, I was, I was thinking maybe I was missing something because I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker or reader, but I know enough to get into trouble, a lot of trouble, and I, I just, it's not there. And so they said, well, it's like you know, other translations, and they don't translate all the words necessarily because they believe that makes it more clear. In this case, that is a big bomb out. This is probably the most important little word in the chapter, the word for. Why? It's the, it's the word upon which the whole understanding of the passage hinges. It connects the two pieces of text, 2, 1 through 10, with 2, 11 to 15, and makes them a single big idea. Paul is going to explain the doctrine taught in the first 10 verses is not made up of raw commands, God is not just telling us how to behave and giving us zero explanation. If I could say it in a way that may be even more uh, pointed, God does not give us a series of commands on merely a legalistic basis. You know, this is the law. Do it. Follow it. Don't ask any questions. The injunctions to the older men, the older women, younger men and women, to the servants is based upon the grace of God. Not a legal basis, but a gracious basis. In other words, we are to live in verse, as specified in the first ten verses because the grace of God has appeared to all men bringing salvation. Stop to think about that for a moment. Why do I live the way that I live? For the grace of God has been poured out upon me. That's why I live as a Christian. I don't live as a Christian because I'm supposed to or because I have to. I mean, yeah, I, I am supposed to and I have to, but I don't, that's not ultimately why. It's because God has poured out His grace upon us and given us salvation free and, in all of its dimensions Because of his unmerited favor, we are called to live godly lives. He's poured that out upon us, and he's done so in order to do what? To redeem for himself, to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I live as a Christian. You live as a Christian because of the grace of God, not because there's some, you know, Ten Commandments of Christianity or you got to do this in order to earn favor with God. That's the whole point of grace. You don't earn it. You cannot earn it. It's impossible to be earned. So we live, as specified in those verses, because of the grace of God. That's what's supposed to, do, to teach the text of Scripture in order, chunk by chunk, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, because somebody could read 2 1 through 10 and say, well, that's what, what you're supposed to do. That's just what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Why? Because of the grace of God because of his favor that he has poured out upon us. Such such a life is only reasonable to live in light of what God has done, in light of who God is. And that's exactly where I was going, brother, is Romans 12. It's a reasonable service that you give yourself as a living sacrifice. It is unreasonable. In fact, it is wickedly unreasonable for somebody to say, I believe Jesus died for my sins, I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to live how I want to live. That is exactly the problem that was present on the island of Crete, where they, the end of chapter 1, professed to know God, but in works they did what? They denied Him. They disconnected the doctrine of salvation from the doctrine of sanctification. They disconnected the saviorhood of Christ from the lordship of Christ, and they said, we profess God, but we're just going to live the way we please. We're going to continue to be lazy, gluttonous, idolaters, or whatever, and we're not going to, you know, just add this into our existing system of thought. No, the grace of God teaches us that it's a total replacement. You change out everything of religious nature in your life and you change your conduct. You know, world religions focus almost entirely on what do we do to merit the favor of the gods. In contrast, Christianity focuses on what God has done to merit salvation for us and how that enables and instructs our grateful, submissive, loving response to it. So, if you get nothing else out of this message this morning but just the word for and you understand the connection of part one to part two, you've got it. You've got the big idea. Live this way. Now, we're going to see in the upcoming verses, 11 through 15, that there is a grace that appears. There is a grace that teaches. That's in verse number 12. I don't think we'll quite get there today. But there's a grace that appears, and there's a grace that teaches. Before we get there, though, I want to deal with one other note about this text, which stands out to me, and that is in verse number uh, 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, um, I don't think I put this in my notes, but let me just say this first that idea of looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, I think sometimes we can kind of get caught up in thinking about the eschatology of it, where we think of the events, and we look at the blessed hope as the rapture, or if you're not so keen on a pre-tribulation rapture, which we are, but you just think of it as the second coming in generic terms. And you focus on that event, that, that future time in which the saints will be resurrected and, and, and go up to heaven. But you have to keep in mind that that event is not an abstract or just, a, just an event or an activity. The hope is actually not the event. What is the hope? It's the appearing of Christ. That's our hope. Not, not the event that we get resurrected. Yeah, that's great, wonderful, perfect. But the event centers on a person, the glorious appearing of Christ. It's, it's not even just the appearing. It's the appearing of, of Christ, right? It's Him. It's Him who is the focus. He is the focus of this. So we're looking for the blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope? Well, it's the coming of the Messiah again, the Lord Jesus. And of course, there's events and things that surround that and and activities and the resurrection and catching up into the clouds and going to be with the Lord forever in heaven and, and all of that. Wonderful, but it's with the Lord that's the issue. That's the issue of the glorious and blessed hope. But I want to deal with one part of this which has caused a lot of difficulty for people, and that has to do with the theology of the Trinity in this verse. It says the glorious appearing of, and here's the focus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice it does not say of our great Father and Savior. It says of our great God and Savior as the singular person of Jesus. There are... What we're doing here is we're seeing that our great God and Savior are one and the same person, not two people, one. The singular phrase, God and Savior, indicates Christ alone here. It's not two people. And I want to prove that to you with, I think, four points here, just four, briefly. First of all, you have the phrase, singular phrase, God and Savior. Now, I put it in the lower case in my notes just to say what I'm about to say about that because sometimes it was used in the Greek language to refer to the monarch. The king is our God and Savior. Can you imagine? They thought of a governing authority. How unsanctified. But they did. He was the king. He was the appointed man by God to rule the the kingdom. He was the God and Savior. Paul uses it in the singular here also to refer to one person, capital P, one God, capital G, and Savior, capital S. There's no God and Savior lowercase anywhere but the Christian's God and Savior, namely Jesus Christ. So that is a singular, well-known phrase in the Greek. The people and the culture there would recognize Paul is actually taking a little eh, dig Those in the political realm, could we say, who are taking the man on the throne as the God and Savior of them. He's saying, no, there is no other God and Savior. There is no other King, capital K, but Jesus the Christ. Secondly, how do we know that this is a reference to God and Savior meaning Jesus? What we're saying here is that Paul is calling Jesus God. There is a rule in Greek grammar called Sharp's Rule. Granville Sharp is a person, and that rule is decisive here. It says in a situation like this in the language, when there are two personal singular, non-proper nouns, not names. Okay, we're not saying you know uh, John and James; those are two different people. We know that, but they're they're like titles here. God and Savior. If they're connected by and, the two nouns and have an article in front, the two nouns refer to the same person. It's therefore clear that Paul is talking about one single individual, not the Father and the Son, as if Jesus is the Father or they're two separate people here. Jesus is God. Jesus is not the Father, and the Father himself is God. This is the mystery of the Trinity. If Paul understood that Jesus were not in fact God, then it's impossible he would have stated it this way here. This is clearly saying that Paul believes in the deity of Christ, as did the other apostles. Thomas to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He's not just using an an expletive. You know how people say when something bad goes wrong, my God? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, my God. My Lord, if you've seen me, who have you seen, Jesus says. You've seen the Father, because I am in him and he is in me. You have seen that. And then, I mean, the evidence just pours out of the New Testament. I mean, here comes a guy and he walks on the water, turns water into wine, raises dead people, heals people that have cancer, that are bent over that our demon possessed and with the word of authority just says out, and the demon comes out. I mean, this is, this is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we're talking about. It gives me chills just to say it, just to explain it. This is who it is that we're talking about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that grammar is pretty cool because it gives you these kind of little insights to the text. Uh, The third argument for the unity of the persons here, of of the person into one, is when it says the um, blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who who is going to come back at the second coming? The Father? The Son? So the whole teaching of the New Testament that the one coming back is the Son. It never tells us that the Father's coming back and the Son is coming back. It's only the Son, right? Jesus is coming back. That's right, the same one. So the appearance of God here has to be the appearance of Jesus on the, on the basis of all those other New Testament texts. The parousia, as it's called in Greek, is the appearance of Jesus again, not the appearance of the Father again. Okay. Now, yes, in, the, in heaven, in the heavenly state, which we believe comes after the rapture, after the tribulation, after the kingdom, then when the new heavens and the new earth are created, there will be a place, a, uh, uh, the new city, Jerusalem, and there will be a place for us to see God. His servants shall see his face. Okay, We will see God, but this is not what we're talking about here. God's not going to come down and the Father, that is, and establish his kingdom, that's Jesus who's going to establish the kingdom. Now, the second coming, we expect the Lord will return and begin His kingdom reign. Nowhere do we see the teaching that the Father will come with Him in some visible manifestation. So the, the vision of the Father in Revelation is a different thing. Okay, So we come now to the text itself in chapter 2 and verse number 11, having dealt with two main issues. One is the word for and how it connects the two texts together. And the other is the theology of of whom we speak. We're talking about Jesus. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. How? Well, we're about to see that. The grace of God here means that God has extended favor toward humans that is undeserved and unearned. In fact, it's worse than, can I say worse than that? It's better than that? The favor of God is ill-deserved. It's not like we're neutral and we don't deserve extra. It's like we're, we're down in the you know, basement level 14 in terms of you know, standing before God and, and we ill deserve His favor and grace. We're unworthy of it. It's unwarranted, is a great word that I found in studying this, unwarranted for God to give us anything because of what's in us. If you look for a warrant... For the favor of God in us, you find a big fat zero. There's nothing in us that warrants the favor of God. Only what God has done, only what God has granted in us is worthy, is, is anything that is of his favor. It's unwarranted for blessing toward us. Yet his grace comes to us in two basic ways. And if you're not a Christian, you have to know this. You are a benefactor of God's grace, common grace. The fact that the sun is shining, I see it out the back windows there. The fact that the breeze is blowing, the grass is growing, the trees, the the sunny sky above, the starry sky at night. That grace is common to all of creation. It's unwarranted by humanity. There's no reason in us that makes God have to do this for us. It's only his kindness and favor and love, simply because God is gracious. And some would add, I think rightly so, that the work of Christ frees God to act in grace toward the world instead of just pure, unmitigated wrath. But all that together, because God is gracious in the work of Christ, He provides the world rain, sunshine, food, and love, and life, and restraint of sin. I I alluded to that in my prayer this morning. God restrained certain circumstances that could have come into your life this morning or this past week that would have prevented you from coming to church this morning. You're not sick today. You've been given the grace of wellness today. Your mind is sound, mostly, I hope. Okay? All is well. Okay? Not perfect, but it's well. He's given you relief from suffering. Sunshine and rain and food and all the kind, good gifts that you can experience. Every good that you experience ultimately traces back to the common grace of God. And that, in turn, is connected back to the work of Christ, which means that God's wrath has been satisfied, see this morning's message, and God can freely offer grace toward the world. So common grace is one manifestation of God's grace. It's not specifically what's talked about here, but it is alluded to or a side thing here. But secondly, there's God's special grace. Common grace is common to all. It's a broad kind of grace. Special grace is that exercised by God towards specific people or groups of people, Israel and the Old Testament, the church and the New Testament, and individuals, believers, both in Old and New Testaments. For today, those people who receive the special grace of God are Christians and groups of Christians gathered in churches. This grace is exhibited when God draws certain ones to himself and saving faith, and pours out upon them forgiveness and all the other blessings of salvation. Read it again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The appearance of God's grace here specifically has to do with what brings salvation. So that is special. Uh, you know, when somebody gets salvation, there is an exercise of God's special grace. But I think, too, that you can see an element of the common grace of God in the appearance of this grace. The common aspect is this, that God brings salvation in that it has appeared to all people. The NIV captures part of this in its phrase, uh, this grace which offers salvation to all people. God has sent Christ into the world to save the world. The gospel is freely offered. It's broadly offered to every person by ministers of the gospel daily, weekly. In every, you know, when you hear the word of God's grace, look, you might not agree with it. You might not even fully understand it. You might reject it. But when you hear the word of God's grace, that is a grace to you. God did not have to um, you know, fill your ears with the sound of the grace of Christ with the fact that Jesus came and died for your sins and rose again so that if you believe in him, you'd have eternal life. God doesn't have to tell you that. In fact, you might not want to have to hear that. You might say, look, I close my ears to it, I'm done with it. But remember, it was a gracious thing of God to give you that news of salvation. Unwarranted, maybe undesired by you, but it was a grace of God. That salvation has appeared to all. God has directed the church, and so the church has done to various levels of success and obedience to broadcast the gospel daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, for 2,000 years in almost every country, over the airwaves, in print Bibles and tracts and digital media and every other way you can think of in which the gospel can be presented, besides by personal Word of mouth. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men generally, commonly, okay? But the grace of God that effectuates salvation has appeared specially in an unmerited way to those who have believed the gospel. That general proclamation of the truth doesn't land in every heart the same way. Matthew chapter 13. Some falls on stony ground, some on good ground, some on thorny ground, some on the, on the pathway and it's trampled down. The birds come and steal it. You know, that, that, that grace of God that shares the gospel with somebody that doesn't care and they just go about their life and say, well, that's nice for you, but I, I'm not interested. It's... The seed was eaten up before it even got a chance to get some dirt and water to germinate. It's a sad situation. Only a fraction of people who are invited by this uh, grace that appears to all, only a fraction of those actually come to know Jesus Christ. Many are called, but few are chosen. It is to those ones who are chosen, those ones who upon whose heart the seed falls and it takes root and bears fruit, those ones that the special operations of God's grace are effective. Okay, So we have the grace of God. We have the appearance of the grace of God. And then I ask this question, how did that appear in history? How did it appear in history? I think this does look back largely to events in past history, It appeared to the world not in writing, not by verbal proclamation initially, but by the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. There's the grace that appeared. The grace of God that has appeared to all men came and dwelt among us. The entirety of the theology of the cross and of the gospel, from an individual being lost to being on the way to heaven, from the world rejecting its king, all the way to the king invading the world and saying, I'm taking over this place. That's the gospel of the kingdom. I've just given you in, in four little short statements. An individual is lost and is saved, now able to enter into the kingdom. The world that rejects that kingdom, the world that's going to get that kingdom whether it wants it or not because Jesus is going to come and subdue all of his enemies under his feet. That is wrapped up under this idea of the grace of God appearing to the world, to all men. This, this grace not only is grace, it not only has appeared, it not only brings salvation It's it, or a It appeared in history, but it brings salvation. You need it. I need it. Every human needs it. If you do not have it, you are lost and not saved and on your way to a Christless eternity in hell. And that, I think, I have to think about this maybe, but I'll say it, that place, the lake of fire, is probably the only place where there is really no manifestation of the grace of God, no favor of God there. If you have God's salvation, bringing grace, you have new life, you are free from sin, you've experienced forgiveness, you know the love and goodness of God, you've been rescued from sin and death, and wrath, and enmity, and bondage, and guilt, you know what true thanksgiving is all about because you thank God who gave such a wonderful gift to you. This is the grace of God that brings salvation and has appeared to all men. None of us in this room are able to give an excuse. We've heard the gospel We know that Jesus came and displayed the unmerited favor of God. We know that's the only way of salvation. We know that we must receive that in order to be born again. What we will see in the rest of the section is that God's grace did not only appear to bring an initial salvation and rescue from sin. Again, we can't stop at verse 11. We've got to go on. It also enables and teaches us how to live properly. Notice. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And what is it doing? It's teaching us, okay, it's not only the grace that saves, it's the grace that teaches. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now, we have to go over this in more detail next time, but just stop and think about that. Why do I live the way that I live? Because for the grace of God. Why do I need to deny in my life ungodliness, temptations, immorality, sin, wrath, thievery, laziness? Why do I have to deny all those things? Because God's grace teaches me to do that. God's grace teaches me to live a holy life. To do that, we have to put aside, put away, put off sin and and all those elements of the world. And instead, it teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So you just can ask yourself in a certain situation, what does God's grace teach me to do in this case with this person who is an irritant, with this temptation that's come my way? What does God's grace teach me to do? Okay, Uh, what would Jesus do is a popular phrase from years gone by. What would grace teach you to do? Maybe think about that. And think about what the Word of God would teach you. It teaches you how to live properly. And this is critical for us and for the people on the island of Crete who were professing but denying. You don't want to profess and deny. You want to profess and adorn the doctrine of God with godly living so that you do not in works deny Him. Both the saving and sanctifying operations of grace are to be operative in the life of the believer. This is what so troubles me about those who do that profess but deny routine because they're saying, I have experienced the grace of God. But my friends, the Bible teaches us that grace of God is not cut off at the moment of salvation. The grace of God is effective grace. It's transforming grace. It's eternal grace. It's, 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 uh, it's a grace that doesn't run out of steam God has begun a good work in you and he will what? Complete it. He will continue it and bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That grace is ever operative. Never leave it behind because you need the divine grace of God that brings salvation to all men. Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful to you today for this word from Titus. Just touching on the beginning of these verses where you have reminded us that your grace not only has appeared commonly to all men, but in a special way in salvation, providing the knowledge of salvation and making the call to salvation to many. Lord, it should rejoice our hearts if we have received Christ and we know you and we're living on this pathway of righteousness that you have exercised special favor toward us, with no warrant in us, no merit in ourselves, no reason that you should count us worthy in ourselves, but you have bestowed upon us a great favor. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.